Proverbs 14 today. Uh, today we have our last day for collection for Operation Christmas Child. Uh, we'll be here from 1 to 4 if you want to join us for that. Um, it's usually a pretty busy afternoon as all the churches are gathering at their churches this morning. They'll be bringing them this afternoon. Um, tonight, uh, there's bowling for the teens. That'll be, uh, they'll meet at the bowling alley here in town, um, and that's going on. Uh, times are there. And uh, all the Christmas and stuff, that's a ways away, so you, we'll, we won't go over that this morning. Uh, this Wednesday, kind of a finger food, potluck kind of thing, and a family service in here for a pre-Thanksgiving service. Um, so uh, tables will be set up, coloring pages for the kids and stuff, and uh, if you want to join us for that, it ought to be fun. So that's where we'll, I think that's it for this week, pretty much. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and the opportunity to study it, spend time. Um, as JC prayed, that it would um, just get right right to our, our needs, to, to bring us a little closer to you, to help us to be uh, a little more um, sensitive to each other and kind to each other as the proverb writer here goes through so much wisdom for us to be a blessing to others and how simple the path is um, of blessing with you. It's, a, it's just a righteous path. And there's no other way to gain that except by obeying your word. So I pray that you'd help us to hear this morning, to receive this morning, and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In Proverbs 14, he, right out of the box, the wise woman builds her house, but a foolish pulls it down with her hands. And as much as they're talking about women here, though, it's, it goes for both sides. Um, being a supportive spouse is so important. As I was praying about this, and there's so many different avenues I wanted to go, and I thought, well, that's just verse 1. I can't do that right away on verse 1. But there are, we have so many things to contend with already. The last thing we need is our closest confidant, our spouse, being one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> we... We need more support than ever before. So first of all, Satan's out to get your spouse. Um, oftentimes, you're walking in the flesh, and they've got to deal with you. I think we forget that sometimes. And they're trying to walk in the spirit as you're walking in the flesh. So as often as we can walk in the flesh next to our spouses, the, walk in the spirit next to our, the better, you know. And they're battling themselves. They're dealing with their own issues, you know, their own flesh, trying to suppress it and walk in the spirit. Everything's against them in the world, telling them things and egging them on. And um, it's just wise to be your husband's biggest cheerleader or your wife's biggest cheerleader to support them so they can know that. So they know when they look into your eyes that you're the supporter, that there's not going to be that look that they get from everybody else in the world. And so it's wise for a woman to build her house. It's wise for a man to build up his wife. It's wise. It's foolish to tear them down, to um, degrade them, or to, or to, if you're, it comes from obviously insecurity when you do that. You want to make sure that you're better in the, of the two. And so you push the other one down to elevate yourself. And that's just not wise for you. I mean, if you want to be selfish about it, it's not to your advantage to pull down your spouse um, or to build them up, especially, obviously, as Christians. Or to be like Christ. Some scriptures that came to mind is Proverbs 21.9. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. There's a little humor mixed in there. He's trying to be a little funny, and it's true. 
Where do you think man caves came from or she sheds? <laughs> I tell you what, you build a man cave and a she shed, you've successfully become not married. <laughs> we just go to our separate houses, you know? No, no, no. Uh, you don't want your husband to have to escape you or your wrath or your whatever it is that you've been greeting him with every day. To a place where he withdraws, you know. And, and likewise with your wife, you don't want her to have to withdraw to her room, whatever that is, you know, to escape you. Um, that's, it, it's a little humorous, but the, the point is made. I, I would rather be on the corner of my house, you know, than to be in, in the house with her, where I belong, you know. In Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, I bring that in for a reason, and here's another scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, 14, 16. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by, her hus- by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your Wife. Now, I bring those in. Those are horrible situations, both of those. When, and this isn't for the person that's trying to be nice. This is for the person that has to be nice to, to receive that. If you have lived your life or are living your life in such a way that your spouse now has to take scriptures that are meant for strangers on the street and apply them in their own home to you, I'm just going to love them to the Lord. I'm just going to, you've got a serious problem and you need to repent of it, is all I'm saying. Oftentimes, that's the case in counseling or anytime I'm trying to give some help in situations that are just so desperate in people's lives. Usually, by the time they ask me, it's, I mean, the papers are already drawn up. They just want to see if you can, you know, fix it in a couple seconds. Of course not, you know. No. Um, not unless you stop all actions and, and absolutely reverse course. Otherwise, if you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop, then no. No, there's no hope. If you're in that place where your spouse, your believing spouse, and you know who they are and you know who you are, it's easy to see. If they're dragging you to church or they're constantly trying to get you to read your Bible or try to get you to love Jesus Christ, and they're, and they're treating you like they're witnessing to a stranger on the street... There's a problem. It's not fair to them. I wanted you to do it for yourself. And of course, you have to. You have to believe on Jesus for yourself. You have to realize that you're a sinner that needs to be saved by grace. But you should never have your spouse have to get to these scriptures. To start pulling scriptures meant for, you know, an outreach ministry within your own home. It should never be. And I say that because we want to be convicted, don't we? If we're that person and the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts and drawing us to himself, I I needed this. I needed someone very blunt to push me over the edge into salvation. To put me into that place and say, this is who you are. I don't care how you see yourself or how you think other people see yourself. I'm telling you how the Bible sees you and this is it. Finger pointing and all he did to me. And that's what stabbed me out of my delusion of belief. I'm a Christian. I'm an American. 
I grew up in a church. Of course I'm a Christian. Are you born again, he said. And I didn't know what it meant. I don't know what born again means when he says these things. So my answer was in a, in a prideful way, yes. But I couldn't define it to him. I didn't even know what that meant. I'd never heard it before. You mean born again. If you don't know what born again means, you're not. You're not. And you need to be. So that'll come up several times in the scripture. That's verse one. You ready for verse two? Okay. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. The person who walks uprightly fears the Lord. And then, of course, it comes from the other, it's the other way around. Anybody that fears the Lord walks uprightly. They just do. When you have a proper respect and understanding for who God is, you know, he's not your homie, you know, or your buddy, or the guy upstairs. You walk a righteous life. So, this is another finger-pointing moment, you know. But when someone tells me, well, I'm walking with the Lord, and it's just not happening. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I'm walking with the Lord. Okay, well, we need to back up a few steps. Can you define what it means to you to walk with the Lord? You know? Well... I don't know. I, I just I'm having problems with my I'm having problems with my boyfriend. Well, I can tell you right now, the fact that I'm talking to you by my, by yourself tells me something about your boyfriend. Where is he? Why isn't he alongside of you? Well, he's at home sleeping in our bed. Okay, we're getting closer now. Do you still want to hold on to that? I'm walking with the Lord bit. Look, when you become born again, there is radical change that takes place in a person's heart and life. Change, not thoughts, change, actual change happens. I'm not going in that direction anymore. I'm going in this direction more. I'm not doing that, saying that. I'm saying and doing this now for the Lord. God cannot bless disobedience. He cannot bless sin. And the, the very idea of us trying to do that. God, I want, the, I want everything and all the blessings associated with God's word without any of the obedience. That's modern day Christianity in many churches. That's not how it works. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to change. He expects it. So there's huge decisions that have to be made as we get closer to the definition of what it means to walk with the Lord. The first thing is you can't be unequal in the oak with an unbeliever. And you are. By, by, the very fa- by your own mouth, you've admitted it. I'm just using this as an example. This is one of many examples of people who honestly cannot see the rebellion. I cannot figure out why God can't bless their lives the way it is. Because his word says he can't. So are you saying that I'm supposed to break up with him? Yeah. I am. But I love him. But he doesn't love you. Or he wouldn't be doing this to you. He wouldn't be laying there next to you. He wouldn't be, he'd be married to you. That's a fact. You're unevenly yoked. And this is just one example of these things. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. 
There's a reason they don't come to church. There's a reason they don't want to come. There's conviction. They want to be okay the way they are. They want all the blessing without the, without the change. It's something to take note of. Radical change happens with believers. It is. It's extreme. Verse 3. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Pride loves to, in a person's heart, belittle. And that's where that rod comes. Bring them down with your words. Beat them down. And, and that's what happens, and we discussed this um, with legalism on Wednesday night a little bit. The legalist is very proud of their obedience or adherence to God's word, or at least knowledge of it. A lot, Oftentimes there isn't the obedience that they think there is, but their knowledge of it. And they use that as a rod of pride to knock down those that aren't, as opposed to recognizing as an older brother or older sister in the Lord, maybe, as they should, full of grace and mercy, reaching out to that person who's not there to elevate them, to tell them the truth for sure. Make no mistake about that, but, but to do it in love so that they can rise up. See, the legalist and the, and the, the bully, uh, the one with the rod of pride, has no intention of them rising up to their level, just wants to make sure everybody knows where they are, you see. That's the difference between a teacher and a sibling. I mean, we're all siblings. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord, but we have to understand something. Some of us are Pauls, and some of us are, are, are Timothys, and some of us aren't even on the spectrum. And the Pauls and the Timothys need to be reaching out and helping those others up. We're called to that. The lips of the wise will preserve them. I don't want to destroy them. I don't want them to never come to know the Lord or to never rise above their sin and disobedience. I'm here to help you. Verse 4. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, or it's clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. You got to choose. Do I want my barn dirty, but active and full of busy cows? Oxen. Or I want it clean and shiny so I never have to lift my finger again, but I have no strength. You see, we destroyed this place yesterday. This building was a disaster. There were things everywhere, food everywhere, toys everywhere. Because there's a bunch of people here all day long serving the Lord, you know. So which is it? Oh, man, we got to clean up after. I wish nobody came. You never say that out loud, but is that what you're saying? Oh, I hate cleaning after these people. Do you? Oh, the toilets are always getting clogged. There's never enough toilet paper. I'm tired of scrubbing these floors. The reason you are is because it's full of oxen. And much strength comes from that, you see. And so the song or the proverb writer here is just simply saying, it's a blessing. How's your house? I don't know. It seems like I clean it and I walk out of the room and I come back and it's destroyed. It's because there's got a lot of little oxen running around probably or one giant big ox that needs to learn how to pick up after himself. I don't know which it is. What a blessing. Famous. I don't know who said it. One of our widows said this a long time ago. There was a young lady complaining about her husband leaving her his boots 
not where they're supposed to be. He just takes them off, and I trip over them, and he just goes and sits down after, you know, he gets home from work, and they're just sitting there. Why can't he put them? And the widow looked at her and said, I'd love to trip over my husband's boots again. You just forget. You take it for granted. Verse 5. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. It's a telling thing when people lie. You make note of it. I don't know that everybody's perfect. I don't know that everybody always tells the truth. Probably not, obviously. But if someone is a habitual liar to you, and it's constant, I think you need to be careful, and I think you need to make note of that. I think the Scriptures tell us to. That person's going to be a faithful witness who doesn't lie. They're going to tell the truth about you when you're not around. But a person that smiles at you and is two-faced, but they're lying to you because that's not really how they feel about you, well, they're not going to be a faithful witness. They're going to be a false witness about you. And you take note of that. Now, it's, it's, you would think that this is a teaching or this verse is for, okay, now everybody stop lying. It, it is. You shouldn't. But it's more about the person who's hearing the lie or receiving the lie or the lie is about them. It's to make note of the people that are doing that. They're not trustworthy people for you. They're not. Maybe they will be one day, and that's your hope and that's your prayer, but you don't need to confide anymore in the person that's a liar. Make note of that. It, it's telling. It's a part of the heart. In Proverbs twelve twenty two, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. God loves that. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes it paints you in a bad light. I hate when I have to tell the truth about forgetting something. I deal with a lot of contract law. <laughs> and there's a lot of things you got to read and understand and how they all connect. In fact, I'm going through something right now with the house where we've got an inspection notice out. And there's no deadline on it. And there has to be a deadline on a contract or else it's open-ended. And so if you don't know that, you have to have a deadline. That's why you write a contract for a house. It has a 24-hour deadline on it because you can't have this open-ended or this contract is forever in force. So it has to have a time when it becomes not in force. Well, this inspection notice, and I'm looking at it, and this is written really ambiguously, and I'm struggling with this, and I had to ask my broker, do you understand what this means? Because you sent out the inspection notice and they're not responding to it. The seller isn't. Hmm. What if they don't? So I got to find the fine print in the contract that tells me, and there is this constant uh, adjusting and, and figuring out. And, and, and uh, so it, I, did I write that wrong? I want to know everything and I want to be professional. Did I write that wrong? Now, I did write it correctly. I'm not going to tell you about any mistakes I've ever made in this situation, but there are times when I've had to call my client because I, I'm doubting myself now saying, this guy isn't responding, but does he need to? Because there's no deadline here, so you have to go to the contract, section 7C of the contract itself that says he has 10 days from receipt of the notice to get back to you. So I figured it out. But I started to doubt, and I'm thinking, that's a, that's a horrible call to make to somebody whose heart is set on, and you have to say, hey, I did that wrong. I think I just lost your house for you. But I can't lie about that. 
As much as I'd like to say, well, that guy, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with that guy. That guy did I've got to own up to it and tell them and make that hard call and say, I should have wrote it this way, and I should have put this date in, and I didn't, and I think I've really made a huge mistake. You know, It's not fun to tell the truth all the time, but it's so necessary to tell the truth all the time and to be honest and upfront and to take the heat. People are more gracious than you, than you think. They're more merciful, and they appreciate that they know that you're the kind of person, if you do ever make a mistake, you will tell them about it that you won't cover it up or hide it. Husbands, spouses, wives, remember that. Very important. She's going to go off. Tell her anyway. She needs to know that there's nothing hidden between you and her. She needs to know that. Wives, tell him. Tell him. He needs to know. Kids, tell your parents. Tell them. Talk to them. They'll be more understanding than you think. We weren't great kids either sometimes, you know? And don't let your parents ever fool you. We've done things. Now, we've learned from those mistakes, and we don't want you to make those same mistakes, but please tell us the truth and be open about it because we want to help you through it too, and we will have grace and mercy for you because we know where we came from. We will. So important. Finally, Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, putting away lying... Let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. There's a deliberate thing we have to do to put away the lying. It's something we can do. Well, I'm asking God to help me with my lying. I just can't seem to stop. No, you deliberately have to choose to stop lying. He calls us to it. You put away the lying. It's not going to happen just, oh, I don't know why. I'm just telling the truth all the time. You know, somebody sprinkled magic dust on my head, and now I'm... No, you have to decide. It's a hard decision, but you have to do it. So that's that. Verse 6. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. I watch all these uh, tables being set up at college campuses where the conservative or the Christian sits there and is open to any kind of questions, and you can see the scoffers coming. They have no interest in having an honest debate about the actual issues. A colliding of, of views is important to have if it's honest and somebody and both want to learn. But if one is a scoffer and they lose the battle or they lose the, their viewpoint just doesn't add up and it's discovered through truth, then they move to personal attack which means they're the scoffer that had no intention. And that's what this verse really applies to, not just that situation, but any. A scoffer may ask you a question, you know, is God so big that he can make a rock that he himself can't lift? That's a scoffer. They have no interest in actually knowing if God can make a rock so big that he himself can't lift. They want to trap you and put you in a place to, as a believer to say, well, I don't know, I guess Jesus is a lie, you know. Stupid. The scoffer, they're not really seeking wisdom because they, well, because they're not seeking wisdom, they actually don't want to know the truth. They don't find it ever. But knowledge is easy to him who understands. Verse 7, go from the presence of a foolish man. When you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge, the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. It's okay to not ask advice from the fool anymore once you realize they're a fool. You don't have to be nice. You don't have to be polite. 
If they don't know, they don't know. Uh, I have some people in my life that, uh, well, I better not say that. (laughs) I ask them to know what the opposite is to do. (laughs) They're that wrong. (laughs) It's almost uh, comical sometimes. We're called to that, to leave that. Look for wisdom. Look for people who know. That's important. Verse 9, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. I don't remember the story very well, but it's one of the Titanic stories. And you know how some of those, some of the, that was really strange behavior on that boat, mainly because communication was horrible. Nobody really knew what was happening or how serious it was most of the time. And if they did, they weren't sharing the, with the passengers because they didn't want them to panic. And there's lots of weird, terrible stories for the, for the, whole, the whole catastrophe. But there were those that were mocking those getting into the lifeboats. <laughs> but they wish they hadn't. It's just a foolish thing, you know, obviously. Verse 10, the heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Um, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Uh, There's another scripture that says every man is doing right in his own eyes. And uh, whether it seems right to you to do that or not, it really doesn't. You have to bounce it or bounce it off of scripture. You have to read it through the lens of scripture because my heart isn't straightened out yet. The scripture is, my heart is deceptively wicked above who can, you know. So, so knowing that, I don't like to use that verse all the time. I try to bring it into our own vernacular. What we use is, look, I'm not completely, I haven't figured this Christianity thing all together. I don't know exactly what righteousness looks like. I'm getting better at it. But I'm constantly checking myself. I'm constantly asking, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? And so I go to God's word and to make sure that it lines up with scripture. That's just a smart thing. I'm, I'm, I'm consulting the instruction manual at times, you know. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not. I don't know if that's okay or not. And so it's important that, although it may seem right to us, its end may, wait, may lead to death. And so I don't want that. I don't want to hurt anybody either. So I need to check this myself. Um, verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow. And the end of myrrh, or mirth, may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Verse 14 there, backsliding always starts in the heart. Begin to Uh, Maybe not out loud and maybe not in public view, rebel against God or begin to go back to your sin, but in your heart you have. It's already happened. And pretty soon your actions will follow, but it starts in the heart. The backslider, what that means is someone who's been walking with the Lord and they've decided that maybe they're not going to walk with the Lord anymore. They don't actually say that out loud, but they begin to not do the things they used to do that were so important to them in the beginning of their faith, the beginning of their walk with Jesus. They begin to set things aside. They begin to push things away. And the end is going to cause them to slip and fall. But a good man is satisfied from above. Is that where my satisfaction comes from? Um, It needs to be. That's what God wants for us. Verse 17. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, 
and a man of wicked intentions is hated. That's a, uh, if you have a, I don't know if your Bible says verse 29 right across from it in the next column, but it's a good companion verse. So 17 says, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. 29 says, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. In other words, slow down. Just slow down before you go off, you know. Some people's wrath and their anger goes from, you know, cold to red hot so fast, you know, so instant. I had a moment like that out in California. I was surprised to see it come out of me. I didn't think it was there anymore. Um, I'm not normally a wrathful or angry person, maybe serious or maybe... I got issues, I'm sure, but I was just sitting there enjoying my, I was enjoying a glazed donut that was cut in half and mango ice cream was put in the middle and then they heated it up. I mean, is that not a delicious treat or what? So I'm sitting there quietly enjoying this and and there's sparrows here coming up to me and I'm feeding them little bits of donut. I mean, I'm, I, I felt like I was seven years old again. I'm like, I got my ice cream drizzling down my beard and I'm feeding birds, you know. Just thoroughly enjoying myself. Conference was over. I was just waiting for my flight. And somebody stops in front of me and, and just looks at me and says, did you know the birds are on acid? You know, what? Yeah, the birds are on acid, man. They're not on acid, you know. Leave me alone. I'm eating, I'm eating my sandwich and looking at my birds here. <laughs> it wouldn't go away. And he just kept looking at me saying, oh, yeah. I said, well, I'm feeding the birds. I'm just trying to be nice to them. I'm trying to be the Christian pastor that I was yesterday. I'm just feeding the birds. Are you feeding them acid? I'm not feeding them acid. And I can feel it. And I just looked at him. I said, walk away now. I just went red hot. I'm like, where is this coming from? Red hot. He says, what's going on, man? I'm from Sweden. I said, I don't care where you're from. Walk away. I'm enjoying myself. Go. Just walk away. And I, this carried on until finally I stood up, and I'm walking towards him with my finger. I'm like, you need to back off, or you're not going to get on that flight the way this is headed. I don't know why I got so mad. Who cares? It's just some guy that's probably not all there. You know, there's a lot of those in California, by the way. <laughs> I understand that. I know that. I know better. You could engage, but what would that look like, and how does that play out for the rest of the day and reports and all? It just, it's just let it go. But I went from here, and it just was, I, just, I just went, slow down, J.D. Don't be so quick-tempered. It's a foolish move to do this. God stopped. He stopped it. He brought it way back down, and I just got to my car, just left with my little donut. Poor birds didn't get any more. And I went to my car and I just drove back to my hotel. And I'm sitting here until my plane comes. I'm not, you know, because it's hours away, you know. Slow down. That wrath, that anger, it's just, it produces problems, trials, difficulties in your marriage, with your kids, at work, all of it. And you usually have to backtrack and you have to apologize and there's these awkward times and all these things. If we just slow down a little bit before going to red hot, you know. Verse 18, the simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. 
One day every knee is going to bow, every tongue will confess, Romans 14 says. Uh, 14 verse 11. They will bow down, they will confess. So I, my problem is, of course, I do want them saved, I want them to come to the know the Lord, but I, another half of me wants them to know I'm right and that they're wrong. That's part of it. And sometimes that verse, Romans 14, 11, doesn't come out in the spirit in which it was intended. You know, you know, one day every tongue's going to confess and every knee will bow. And you're going to be one of them because you're going to hell. You know, there was no, it's no help and lifting up. You know, it was just a, it's going to get hot pretty soon for you, you know, kind of thing. No, it's not what he means. It's meant to say that whatever it is that you're clinging to in this world, unbeliever, Whatever it is that you think is going to, it's all coming to an end. The scriptures tell us, and we can see prophecy unfolding. I mean, this is the right way to minister, right? And one day, every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow. He is king. He is Lord. It isn't a decision that you make. It's who he is. You're just acknowledging the fact that he is. That's what that verse means. And someday, it's, and so it's better to willingly Accept your king and his love for you and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness for you now is so much better. See, I willingly bow the knee. I'm a, I'm a bond slave, not a slave, but a bond slave. I, cho- I chose to be his. I gave myself to him because I saw and recognized the love that he has for me. That's how you use Romans 14. Not the way I use it sometimes. Verse uh, 20. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. And we live in a world that looks for that and wants that. If you're a famous person, you got a lot of friends. You know, if you're a rich person, you got a lot of friends. You do. They're careful around you. They say what you want to hear. It's very hard for these people to have an honest relationship with somebody or to at least know that it's an honest relationship. Very difficult. I think all of us have been touched in one way or another with this Taylor Swift and Kelsey and, and situation. Love it or hate it, it makes no difference. They, they both need Jesus, I'm sure or a little more of him if they don't have him already, or more of him. That's not the issue. The issue is, who can those two people trust? What what woman could Kelsey trust to know that she was only after him for his heart? Or for Taylor, for that matter. I I don't idolize them at all. I feel for them as human beings. As a pastor looks at sheep, that's how I see them. That is a very difficult place to... Now, they they put themselves there, but... How hard would it be for Taylor to find so he's not looking for the millions, if not a billion by now? I don't know what she's worth. And the fame associated with that. How do you, how do you go on a date or get courted, you know? It's very difficult for, for, the, for the rich or for the famous to do these things. Most of us are like, well, I don't have any. I don't even think about them. I just want their stuff. That's the problem. That's the problem. You don't see them as human beings. You know, we need to. They're just people, They're just souls. They have a much different path than most of us do, right? I can't imagine the different kind of pressures and difficulties that they have, temptations. My goodness. 
You could literally buy anything you want. You could do anything you want, and no one would call you on it. Can you imagine? Wow. Difficult. So the poor man is hated even by his own neighbor. We need to look at the folks that are poor around us. There's poor in spirit, and there's poor financially. I understand the difference. There's socioeconomic you know, things, and then there's also spiritually poor. He's hated by his own neighbor, right? Just because they're dirty, just because they're disheveled, just because they don't carry themselves in a way um, that shows self-respect. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't get ministered to or shouldn't be ministered to or loved or, friend, or befriended, for that matter. Very important. And they can be very conscientious about their appearance and the way they conduct themselves and be poor. Shouldn't be, the, shouldn't be the deciding factor for any of us as to whether we're going to associate or not with the person. And God calls us on that. And so since the proverb writer is writing to his son, who's going to be a you know, prince, a king, and, and all these things, he's, he's trying to teach him something. Look, be careful that you don't get so cliquish that you only associate with those that are of the same socioeconomic level as you. Anybody can be your friend. Anybody can be a true neighbor. Anybody. And make sure that you're open to that. Um, and to be friendly and to be that open person to them is very important. You're a happy person if you do that, if you show mercy and care. Verse 22. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. I like the fact that he uses the word devise. You plan on good? You look for opportunities for good? Do you figure out ways? I mean, I'll give you an example. Christmas, I think we devise good for that day for our grandkids or for your kids or for your friends or family or your spouse. You devise good. <laughs> we're going to have a good meal. That means you love them and you want to do the best you can. Oh, we're going to buy them that present because I remember I'm asking about that that one time. You're devising good. God wants us to spend a lot of time doing that and not just buying or doing things for people, but always being mischievously devious about doing good for people. You know, Those words probably don't go together, but I'm sticking to it. As opposed to devising evil, what a waste of time. Evil so busy as it is, doesn't need our help. To look at other people and to devise, to devise good, it's a wonderful thing. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Work. He wants us to work. It keeps us busy. It keeps us healthy. He doesn't want us to complain about our work. He wants us to work. Work in and of itself, no matter where you are, no matter who you're working with, is producing something in you. I have a bunch of employees. You don't know the kind of employees that I have. You don't know the kind of coworkers I work with. Oh, you know, every single one of them. We're working with sinning people. It doesn't matter. You can't switch a job and go to the next job and say, finally, this is where all the holy people are. They're not there either. When I have to deal with difficult people, that helps me. I, I learned that. Can you imagine if Jesus did that? Where is the good 5,000? You know? I mean, all they do is want more fish and bread. That's all they do. They always want miracles. They always want me to talk all the time. Well, who's going to talk to me? You know? Where's the good? Oh, he wants us to be involved. 
You imagine going to the dinner party to eat with sinners and tax collectors? You're not comfortable there. They're not comfortable with you. You're trying to get comfortable with each other, you know? He calls us to that, to work. Verse 24, the crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So wonderful to watch someone walk, walk with the Lord and to be able to share their strengths and their failures, you know, their wins and their losses. It's wonderful. Our kids watch it. They grow from it. People grow for it. It's a fountain of life to all who watch. First of all, they don't feel alone in their own walk. And secondly, they can see that there's, there's hope for them to walk better, more straight, closer, in more obedience. In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of princes. Take note of that. You know, where is everybody? He's not saying crowds are an automatic indication of, you know, your success or your greatness. You know, that's not necessarily the case. But, you know, on the other side of this, it doesn't say this in verse 28, but neither is the lack of people a proof that you're a righteous person either. And I say that because there's a lot of pastors that I meet. I'm just preaching the truth. That's why nobody comes. I don't think that's true. That can be true. I know in the last days that people are going to heap up to themselves, people to tell them what they want to tell them, and they have itching ears to hear what they want to hear. But it also could be that you're just weird. I was thinking about that, that Jason Barbosa who just died. The, he was a, a hairstylist here in town. And uh, when we were at Hibbit Sports, if anybody remembers that era of Calvary Chapel, we were at Hibbit, where Hibbit Sports was. We had those two bays. And uh, we were just moving in and trying to make the best of it, turning in the aerobic platform into this stage. This is literally the stage of the aerobic studio that we took over. So we've never built another one. We just keep dragging it around from place to place. Well, this Jason Barbosa comes over to us and knocks on our door while I was there or somebody was there. It's probably a bunch of us. I don't know. Um, and he, he says, hey, I've got this old standing, you know, uh, uh, reception desk that I don't you, you could you use it I'm like we need a sound booth that'd be perfect that was our first sound booth that he gave us okay um, um, now where was I going with this I had I had a point hold on I, I got this uh, oh oh that's what it was weird <laughs> we we were we're different a lot of people that come here for the first time or even after a few weeks, like, it's, it's a little loosey-goosey for a lot of people. It just is, you know. There's no liturgy. There's no dut da dut da dut you know, like they're used to. There's no, there's no formality to it, I mean, at all. I mean, our formality is we're going to take a five-minute break. You can pretty much guarantee that that's going to happen every week in between services, Right? That's as kind of far as we go. There's no readings. There's no anything. So it's very different and very unusual for people that have grown up like I did in a denomination that does that every single Sunday. You knew. You knew. You know. 
But for him to come over, despite our weirdness, what are you doing at church in a strip mall? That's weird. Yeah, it's going to get worse. You know, on Wednesday nights, we put our chairs in a circle, you know, kind of thing. People would walk by. We actually heard that. It's a cult. Calvary Chapel's a cult. They put their chairs in a circle on Wednesday nights. I'm like, well, that's obviously a cult. <laughs> Who would ever do that? Well, we were so little. We had like 20 people. It felt weird for me to stand up with, you know, in rows. It was strange. Let's just all talk to each other. So we did a circle. It was form or function. It was not form. Um, but weird. Um, so we, we try to keep it. We're trying not to be weird at Calvary. We try to be normal. We're going to have coffee and donuts. I think a lot of churches have coffee and donuts. We love the Bible. We believe it's inerrant. It's perfect. We also believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in teaching through the entire Bible and clinging to it. And if, if, if we say things that are opposite what the Scripture says, then that, say, that goes, you know. It's pretty solid stuff. It's not weird. Kind of what the Bible teaches us to do. Don't be weird for weird's sake is the idea. There may be a lack of people in your church for an other, other than your beautiful, truthful teaching. Could be that you're just kind of odd, you know, so don't be odd. Try not to be anyway. Anyway, verse 29 we've already covered. Um, goes along with 1730. A sound heart is life to the body but envy is rottenness to the bones. In uh, Proverbs uh, 17.22, very similar. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. And, and I know that for the most part, we believe that's just sort of a picture. You know, oh, laughter is just a good medicine. I don't know that it actually isn't really a good medicine. Like it actually changes chemical balances in our body. I think we're learning more and more about that. The more joy in your life, the more, not just positive thoughts, but, but when I don't spend my entire day in my mind negatively blasting people or destroying people's in my brain, I don't have to say it out loud, but if it's in my head and I'm, I'm in scenarios and I'm in conversations that I would have if I could, and I'm in that constant space, that changes you chemically. It causes things to happen. I mean, build up fear and anxiety that's not there. It's not real. It's just developing it in your mind. Well, this could happen, you know, and this could happen. But it isn't. But it could. Hmm, there's a lot of things that could, but I think it's gonna. Why do you think that? I don't know. I just think so. And all of a sudden, you've got this anxiety and things building in your life. And he calls us, I want you to meditate on those things that are beautiful and pure and lovely for a reason. I want your mind to get away from that. And I want you to go, not just with positive thoughts, I'm not saying that. But I am saying, think about the beautiful, lovely things of God. Find out the best attributes of those people that you don't get along with. I'll, they may be your enemies, they may not. But think about those best qualities and how you can serve them. When you start thinking about forgiveness and mercy and grace and ministering to other people, despite how they're treating you, it's medicine. It builds you up. I think those two verses are more than just pictures. I think they're actual. Verse 31, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. If you want to honor God, that's why the him is capitalized. And you'll have mercy on the needy. You're not going to oppress the poor. The wicked is banished in his wickedness, 
but the righteous has a refuge in his death. We can look forward to our deaths. We can look forward to our continuation of life everlasting with God. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. Quiet people. <laughs> Quiet people that are wise. You ever run into the, one of those people that just doesn't spare any words? They don't, or they don't not spare words. That's the, that's the other way around. They just say exactly what needs to be said, and it's perfect. They never go beyond what needs to be said. You know, I, I struggle with that. I feel like I've got to explain the same thing twelve times so that everybody can understand it in different way. You know, what I mean by and what I mean by yeah, we got it. Move on. You know, kind of thing. I think Sandy Adams. He's a teacher from Georgia, Calvary Chapel pastor from Georgia. Just a wonderful teacher. He doesn't waste a word. Very good at it. Writes it all out, by the way, you know, but easy to follow and it progresses through the text. And it's just a wonderful, just doesn't add anything that isn't necessary. I think that's wise. And I think as he's talking about, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. With many words, transgression is unavoidable. You just can't help yourself. I get myself into trouble a lot that way. Verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Um, I want God to bless our nation. I do. But I want him to bless it because his word says so, because we're righteous. We can't, we can't be as a nation, like I described earlier with that one person who says, I'm walking with the Lord. Are you? As a nation, are we? You know, well, I am. I think for the most part we are. Well, let's find out what's going on in our nation that he can't bless, can't be a part of, and has to punish according to his words. And we need to, we need to remove that. Because we can't expect him to shower blessings upon sin or disobedience in our nation. There has to be that return to him. Yes, if my, hum, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I'll heal their nation. Heal it from what? From sin, not just bless them, not just shower them with gifts, but to bless them with an obedient heart. And what follows that obedient heart is the blessing of God and his hand upon our nation. That's what has to happen. Verse 35, the king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. Um, it's just nice to have someone who's going to do exactly what you ask him to do. It's a blessing to know that. Every, every employer out there knows that. I know that if I send that person on an errand or if I put them to that task, I can leave the job site, I can leave the building, I can leave the shop, I can leave wherever it is, and I know that's what's going to take place. I don't have to micromanage. I don't have to make sure. I know that as soon as I walk out the door, they're not going to go do something else. They're going to do exactly God. God loves that. He wants his Christians to do that too. I know that if I send JD on a task, I know that's exactly what he's going to do. He's not going to ad lib. He's not going to do his own thing. He's going to do what, exactly what I told him to do. I don't do that all the time, but that is my goal in life. You know, and should be all of our goals. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and then we'll close with this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
I add that, and I brought that scripture in because that is what the unbeliever or the person who says I'm walking with the Lord is saying. Because I haven't had God's wrath in my life or I haven't felt punishment for my sin or nothing really bad's happening in that area of my life, it's this other area that needs help, we get the idea that there's a permission for this sin in our life, that we're a special case that it isn't affecting other areas of our life. This is compartmentalized. This is my sin. It's okay. We're going to come out of this. I'm looking forward to the future. Something's going to change, I'm sure, but I'm going to continue to live in this sin. And God says, don't be confused by this. He's not slack concerning his promise of wrath or of everlasting life. He's just slow. He's long-suffering. He's a patient God who wants us to figure it out and say, do I really have to make it public? I'd rather not make it public. You'd rather I not make it public. I would prefer you just repent of it now. But don't think that because I haven't made it public that I'm okay with it, because I'm not. I'm just slow. I'm long-suffering. And that's important for us to know. God wants us to change. He wants us to change radically. He wants us to be born again. And if you're not, you need to be today. If you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit at all from his word today, I would encourage you to respond to that. Don't walk away and think about it. I've got to think this through some more, you know, or whatever. That's fine. You and God can reason together, and you can do this tonight even by yourself. But I would encourage you not to leave this place without Jesus, without the forgiveness that he offers you. The conviction that you feel is his displeasure with the disobedience in your life. But he's also, with that displeasure, somehow drawing you to himself. Somehow you feel like you need to step closer to God and not further away from him. I would accept that invitation, if I were you, from him. To walk closer with him. To acknowledge what he says about your life as truth and step closer to him as he's asked. Because he wants to make it better. He wants to do more. That's what he wants. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. So much wisdom packed into this one chapter. We appreciate it. Thank you for writing it down. Help us to not just appreciate it, but to apply it, to receive it, to change our minds, to think this way, if we don't already. And as we think this way, as the situations come up in our life this week, that we'd actually respond from a wise person's perspective, from their wisdom. That we wouldn't be foolish in our decisions in the way we walk, Lord. Lord, some of us were convicted this morning of the foolishness that's in our lives, things that aren't okay and you want to take away from us or change in us. We want to believe that and accept that this morning, Lord. Thank you for pointing those things out, to letting us, to, to, to let us know these aren't okay, even though we're comfortable with them and are used to them, but that they need to go. And so, Lord, we radically want to get rid of these things in our lives and we want to walk rightly with you, uprightly. We fear you. You always look out for our best. You're a great father. Your Holy Spirit is a wonderful counselor. And if this is your counsel and if this is your leading as a father, we want to follow that. And so we surrender those things over to you even now. Our pride, our lying, our hidden things of the heart, God, we surrender those to you now. We walk away. We, we, we repent of those things. God. Lord, for those that aren't born again, Lord, we want to be. We want to understand the things of the Spirit. We want you to come into our life, Lord. We understand that our sins have separated us from you and that you've given us a way of salvation. 
forgiveness through your son Jesus and his death on the cross. And we believe that today. We accept that offer of forgiveness from you. Thank you for that. This great salvation, Lord. But Lord, we want to give you our lives as well. That we don't live the way we used to so that we continually rack up sin and disobedience. We want to change. We want to be obedient and we don't want to sin. We want to walk righteously. So we pray that you to help us and change us from this day forward to be radically different, have a biblical worldview, to see the world as you see it, to walk with you as a child or servant of yours, God. To know that we've been born again, born of the Spirit. We can see the things of the Spirit and understand those things now. We want to walk that way. And I thank you for that. Lord, bless these people as they go. I pray that you bless their week. Bless our afternoon together as we're picking up boxes for Operation Christmas Child. We pray that you bless every one of those boxes and every one of the kids that are going to receive it, God. We pray a blessing over them. We pray that it would land each box into the right kids' hands and they'd know you because of it, God. They'd know you better or for the first time. Thank you for letting us be a part of that ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.